It's Tuesday, September 16th, 2014 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So I was reading a review of Joshua Ferris's new book, To Rise Again at a Decent Hour. Good review. He's a great writer. And I noted that he was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, the famous British uh, literary award. Could also go to people who uh, uh, write in a Commonwealth country. But now it's open to Americans. And in fact, another U.S. writer, Karen Joy Fowler, her book, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, has all also been nominated. These titles are long. I know it's a short list, but these are long titles. And the other titles by the actual British writers are shorter, like The Lives of Others and How to Be Both. Those are nice short titles. You go over the list of Man Booker Prize winners, The Bone People, The Old Devil's Moon, Tiger, Oscar and Lucinda, The Remains of the Day, The Famished Road, The English Patient. Even when you get a long title, Life and Times of Michael K. Life and Times kind of scans as one component. And Michael K is just, you know, a word happens to have a last initial but it really just scans as a proper name. In 1972, a novel named G, G, the letter G, won the Man Booker Prize. I think the history of media with two long titles is a fraught history. Like right now on Broadway, there is a show based on the book, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, but no one is even calling it that. They call it Curious Incident. And you can go to broadway.com slash Curious Incident, or its own website is CuriousOnBroadway.com. It gets too long, and when you have a very long title, you're often only remembered for your long title. The Englishman who went up a mountain and came down a hill or whatever it was, I might be getting those geographic features confused or remember the legends of the guardian the owls of gahul i mean you know you're in trouble when someone says oh i saw that movie which movie you know which one oh yeah 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 which one was that the legends of the guardian the owls of gahul it's too long it's a mouthful and by the way gahul has an apostrophe in there giving rise to the supposition that it's actually a contraction of a longer word than gahul So I think this bodes ill where, as Americans, the first time invited to the Man Booker Prize, we're going way too long. I'm I'm pretty sure we won't win. How could you let an American win the first time ever nominated, especially given that there is another nominee and the title of this novel is Jay. And speaking of books and Englishmen writing books, Ken Follett, he's written a lot of them. They're all long. They've all sold a lot. You know, I haven't done this, but given how many books he's written and given how many pages there are, he may have sold the most pages of anyone I could think of. So we'll interview Ken Follett in another interview. In fact, the first interview on the show, I'll be talking to a man who could tell you that which is compelling. Common thread between these two interviews, my friend Alex Blumberg is mentioned in both. He was just on my mind. His new podcast is called Startup. That's the podcast I was referring to. I wanted to plug it. In the spiel, I will be talking about wedge issues and culture. But first, are you ready to be compelled, nay, riveted? Today in world fishing and aquaculture news, the Faroe Islands have won a dispute with the EU The people of the Faroe Islands catch half a million fish a year, and they believe that the number of herring in their territorial waters justifies a commensurate increase in the catch, while Norwegian representatives accuse them of behaving unilaterally and breaking the overall ceiling agreed for North Atlantic herring. Okay, 
Are you bored? Are you a little bored? You find that less than compelling? I really didn't give it the oomph in my read. But I think some of what makes that that I was just reading a little boring, uncompelling, or unriveting can be explained by factors other than the presence of the words fishing, EU, and Faroe Islands. In fact, there's a new book out. It's called Riveted, The Science of Why Jokes Make Us Laugh, Why Movies Make Us Cry, and Religion Makes Us Feel One with the Universe that explains why things are riveting or compelling. Its author is Jim Davies, who's a professor of cognitive science at Carleton University. He lives in Ottawa, Canada, and he joins me now. Hello, Jim. Hi, nice to talk to you. Now, I know you're a man with many interests, but also who uh, believes in the imagination. Were you into my pharaoh fishery story and wondering where it was going? Yeah, I actually was a little bit interested, uh, although it might be a more boring news piece, perhaps. It Uh does involve things that, uh, you know, news would call newsworthy. It's got conflict between people. Conflict is good. Competition over resources. Right. So, okay, good, good, good. So if you wanted to emphasize the compelling stuff, you'd go with the people involved, not the fish, right? Right. Right. You'd go with conflict, definitely conflict. What else would be some compelling things to tease out of that story? Well, the the conflict is certainly interesting. If the news story had been that they'd come to a perfect good agreement and this fishery was completely compliant with the laws that we put in place five years ago, <laughs> that would be really boring, right? People, they're compelled by change, okay? Uh, if you could put, you know, sex and violence in the story, it might make it better. If, uh, if someone was hit with a fish in an altercation at a uh, board meeting or something like that. Certainly that drives our primal desires for uh, personal conflict that we love to pay attention to. So slapped with a fine is little better than slapped with a herring. I get it. So in fact, early on in your book, and I think it's a compelling and riveting place to put this, six, uh, a unified explanation of compellingness. What are the foundations of compellingness? The foundations of compellingness are that we are attracted to social information, which we just talked about. We like to hear about other people and their conflicts and social status. We're interested in what we uh, hope is true or fear is true. So we're looking for things that can help us and hurt us. We are interested in patterns. That means we're understanding the world. So we delight when we discover a pattern. And we are also attracted to incongruity for a different reason. We um, see incongruity as something to be figured out. And as a naturally curious species, we seek out incongruity so that we can try to find patterns in it. And then the last two are kind of a hodgepodge of psychological and biological effects that uh, make us who we are. If we were a different species... All our art, our stories, uh, religions would all be very different. Are there things that you can't figure out why they're compelling, and then you had to dig a little deeper? Yeah, there are some mysteries. For example, I can't figure out why people like flowers so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't eat them. We find them pretty. But a lot of things that we find pretty, you can trace back to some kind of reason uh, that would have helped us survive in the Pleistocene era. <laughs> so um, I just read, actually, recently that flowers indicate an area that is bountiful with food. But if, you know, if that were true, then wouldn't we want pictures of food? But we much prefer uh, like a painting of some flowers on our wall than um, a bunch of oranges and a steak. Right. And uh, that's, that's still a little bit mysterious to me. Right. So, and you do in your book point out, it's not that we're against looking at nature. In fact, we like it. In fact, studies show that we like looking at scenes of landscapes as if they were from inside a lean-to or some other place that a human could actually be standing. That's right. That's right. People like refuge. It's called refuge and prospect. So they like to be covered and safe from uh, prying eyes and uh, natural rain and that kind of thing. But they also like prospect. They like to be able to see far. If you walk through a museum and look at the landscape pictures, they, usually you can see far. There's a little bit of coverage. There's some animals. There's water. It's from a high point. That's a great place to camp. That's a great place to build a house. So we've evolved to find that very attractive. Can you think of some things that people have tried that just aren't compelling for the reasons that you lay out? 
I'm going to take what I think is a great example from the, what was it, Al Gore versus, was it the younger George Bush, when asked about um, the voting scandal and their explanations of it. So we had uh, Gore, he said something like, we need to have a very decisive and thorough investigation to make sure that we get an accurate blah, 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 blah. He's been described as an egghead and doesn't really touch people in a way that people like. He seems a little bit robotic. Then you ask Bill Clinton about it, and he says, the people have spoken. It's just going to take us a little time to figure out what they said. And it's poetic. It appeals to uh, a metaphor to something we all understand about speaking and being heard and being understood. And, and it was succinct, and it didn't sound like it was talking over people's heads. And I think that speaking to the populace, and not all media tries to do that, but if you're trying to make a hit song or you're trying to make a, a hit something that's going to be popular, with, right. you've got to address the very basics of human psychology rather than um, esoteric things. I wanted to ask you one last question about the length, uh, attention spans and length of uh, that which is interesting. I was listening to my friend Alex Blumberg's podcast, and he asks this venture capitalist for funding for his podcasts. And uh, the VC says, I don't know. You guys, uh, you, you run 20 minutes in length or an hour in length. Look at what's hot now. It's these short videos. It's these two-minute videos. And I said to myself, well, that's true, but I still think that there's plenty of argument that we're into. Like, movies haven't gotten shorter in length. Movies are the same amount of length. And actually, the most popular radio and podcasts are, you know, things like This American Life, which have longer stories than on the nightly news. So do you have any insights as to are there specific lengths for specific media that we find compelling more than other lengths? That's a great question. And I don't think that it's media-specific. I think that the length of a piece depends on a couple things. This American Life, for example, is something I listen to, and it often has multiple stories. So to call it a single work that's an hour long yes. is maybe not even the right way to look at it. Right. Uh, indeed, yeah, people often watch two-minute videos, but they'll also get on Netflix and watch an entire series over the course of you know a week, maybe you know 22 hours of stuff. They want these long things. And the book industry, when the e-books ebook readers first came out, people thought there would be a revival in short fiction because it was, you know, you could buy it cheaply, you didn't have to use a bookstore. They were absolutely wrong. People want books that are 200, 300,000 words long. So people have a deep need for long stuff. One thing that differentiates what length should be depends on how weird it is, okay? Mm -hmm. So you can't deal with weirdness for very long before you start to get bored of it, which is why I love music videos. Before music video, there was no real way to get avant-garde film to the masses. But, you know, if the song's okay, you can watch three minutes of insanity and be like, huh, that's kind of cool. If it were an hour and a half long, then people would start to get up and walk out. They stop the video, this kind of thing. Jim Davies is a professor at the Institute of Cognitive Science of Carleton University. He's the director of the Science of Imagination Laboratory. His new book is called Riveted. Thank you, Jim. Thank you so much. Ken Follett is the author of Eye of the Needle, The Pillars of the Earth, its sequel, World Without End, and now the magnificent epic, The Century Trilogy. The new one is Edge of Eternity. It is the sort of book with maps on the inside cover, with casts of characters before it starts. It is broad. It is sweeping. It is everything we've come to know and expect from Ken Follett. Hello, Ken. Hi, Mike. It's great to be on the show. Describe, if you will, for me, your workspace. I have uh, three houses, and in each house there's a library, and I like to work surrounded by books. I also have 
uh, a little collection of uh, drawings and paintings of authors, usually uh, authors I admire or, or artists I admire. So I have a little inspiration from uh, better writers than I am all around me. But the truth of the matter is, actually, because I started writing as a newspaper man, and you know, if you're working in a newsroom, you can't say, uh, would everybody please be quiet because I'm trying to write. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so I got used to writing in, uh, uh, you know, in a noisy environment with people shouting, people uh, making phone calls. And so actually I'm comfortable writing anywhere. I can work quite happily in an airport or on a plane. Who are some of the writers who you look at for inspiration? Have they changed over the years or for specific works? Well, that's interesting. I mean, the people I really like don't much change. Uh, I'm very fond of Stephen King's work. I think I've read everything that he's written. Uh, I like Philip Roth very much. I like uh, George Eliot. And these are people, actually, I've been reading for quite a long time. So uh, it doesn't change much over time. Those authors have sweep. They have ambition. They know how to connect to the audience. Is there anyone who you admire or look at who is decidedly unfollowed-like? Uh, don't say Emily Dickinson. You will blow my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was 12 years old, I started to read the James Bond stories by Ian Fleming. They just blew me away. And I've always remembered that because although I don't write like Ian Fleming, I don't have a series character, what I've remembered about Ian Fleming is the excitement that I felt when I got a new one. And I've always, that's always been my standard. That's how I want people to feel about a new Ken Follett book, the way I used to feel about a new James Bond story. So in writing, when you tackle an American subject, you, you mentioned your three houses. Are any of them uh, in the U.S.? No, I have, I have two houses in England and one in Antigua. So do you, what do you do to put yourself in the American mindset? Uh, I think American culture is quite familiar, although I do. When I've written the first draft of a book, I have several people read it and look for errors. Mm -hmm. So I have a, a German reader, for example, who's been reading all three books in the Century Trilogy because there's a German family in it. And for Edge of Eternity, in which for the first time I have African-American characters, I hired an African-American editor. Particularly, she's a very good editor anyway, but particularly to make sure that I didn't make mistakes about African-American culture and family life and so on. What mistake doesn't have to be African-American, could be any little thing. Can you remember a mistake where someone said, actually, we wouldn't say it like this, or that's not quite in keeping with uh, the milieu you're writing about? One of my characters, uh, Maria, is uh, an African-American woman, and she is invited to swim in the White House swimming pool. And my editor, whose name is Cherise Fisher, said to me, now, there's something you don't know. African-American women spend so much time on their hair that her first thought would be, oh, my goodness, I can't go swimming. I can't get my hair wet. I would never have guessed. You know, I would not have known that. A white guy in his 60s, this is outside my range of experience. And uh, so it's very useful yeah. to have that kind of person read my drafts and just 
point out these little things and help me make sure I get everything right. And did you put that in the book? Did the character I certainly, I certainly did. Yes, I mean it's a nice detail anyway. And uh, yes, I certainly put that in. It's a, you know that's what she panics about. She doesn't panic. You know all the other things you might panic about. She's being asked to go swimming with the president. She should have panicked about his intentions, but she's a innocent young woman. So what she panics about is her hair. So this book, the edition that I'm uh, holding, this Edge of Eternity, 1,098 pages, not at all atypical of a Ken Follett book. You know, I was listening to my friend. Uh, my friend has a podcast where he asks these venture capitalists for funding, and he wants to do a radio show that's maybe 20 minutes in length. And they said, no, no, media now, everything's short. All the videos online are short. Tweets are short. And then there's, I, I, I don't know if he's right, but your books definitely stand in contrast to this. Do you think that that view of the world that we actually crave short content is wrong? Or do you think that people still flock to your books as sort of a respite from how abbreviated so much of communication has become? I think that view is wrong. I think people will read a long book and my books prove it, but it has to keep their attention. You have to work hard to keep people's attention, to make sure that there's always something happening in the story that makes the reader think, oh my goodness, what now? If you grab readers' attention and if they love the story and they like these characters and they want to know what happens to these characters, then they will read a long book perfectly happy. In fact, they will enjoy it more than something short because they'll get deep into it. And they'll feel they know these people and they know about these people's lives and they want to see how these people turn out when they grow into adults and get married and begin to get older and have children and grandchildren. I think the modern audience, just like audiences in any other age, will love something long so long as it really grabs them. Ken Follett has sold over 150 million books in 33 languages in more than 80 countries. His latest, which is book three of the Century Trilogy, is Edge of Eternity. Thank you so much, Ken Follett. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Front page, New York Times, Democrats put cultural issues in their quiver. A little bit of a confusing headline as the archery metaphor, not extended throughout the piece, although that would be weird, right? Talking about the bullseye, hitting the bullseye of voter interest or like a real life Legolas commanding a fusillade of missiles against the orcs. So too did Allison Lundergren Grimes rebuff Mitch McConnell. Actually, that might have been a good choice. But it was a weird choice about how this whole issue was framed. The underlying argument... And it wasn't lost in the piece. It's in there, but it doesn't seem to be how the analysis of cultural issues was framed. The underlying argument was that when it comes to cultural issues, Democrats are closer to the stated preferences of most voters. Fine. But this idea was dealt with politically, like a game of who currently owns this tactic. Here's a phrase. After a generation of campaigns in which Republicans exploited wedge issues to win close elections, Democrats are now on the offensive, you know, they're implying the exploitation of wedge issues. Or Democrats are using wedge issues in states like Virginia, North Carolina, Colorado to stoke concerns about Republicans among moderates. Well, pardon me, but I don't see an equivalency here. I don't think Democrats are using the issues. I mean, they are emphasizing their stances, but I think Republicans use the issues. 
issues, more literally used them, shaped them, crafted them, used scary, inaccurate predictions about the implications and consequences of cultural issues in a way Democrats by and large do not. I don't think I am being overly colored by the fact that I happen to agree with the Democrats on cultural issues. Well, except for that Murphy Brown thing. That was actually a a pretty badly overwritten show. That's what Dan Quayle was arguing, right? Well, first off, let's talk about what are wedge issues. Wedge issues are controversial. They engender an immediate, vehement emotional response. A non-wedge issue might be something like the economy or education. These are sometimes called consensus issues. And the politics there dictate you don't fight on, I'm for, he's against. Each candidate tries to make the better case that they're the one who would be the proper steward for the economy or would help schools achieve, that sort of thing. Wedge issues are more for or against. They're just a different way of seeing the world. In this Times piece, and this frequently happens, wedge issues are a stand-in for cultural issues, though they don't have to be. For instance, in the modern age, it's been said that Democrats are using the minimum wage as a wedge issue. But not in this piece. Wedge issue means cultural issue. And it was all famously defined in the 1992 Republican National Convention, where Pat Buchanan popularized this phrase. It is a cultural war. So far, we have been fighting the culture war on Pat Buchanan's terms. Here's how he defined the terrain. This is radical feminism. The agenda that Clinton and Clinton would impose on America. Abortion on demand, a litmus test for the Supreme Court, homosexual rights, discrimination against religious schools, women in combat units. That's change, all right. But that's not the kind of change America needs. It's not the kind of change America wants. And it's not the kind of change we can abide in a nation we still call God's country. One of those issues, decrying women in combat, has totally evaporated except in very small precincts on the right. Others were used as wedge issues, mostly via scare tactics. I'm going to accept abortion from this discussion. I think that is mostly conducted based on a difference in morality. There are lies in the abortion debate, but I'm going to talk about the other ones. I think they illustrate my point better. So let's take gay marriage, or homosexual rights, as Pat Buchanan calls it. When conservatives say that they're against gay rights or against gay marriage, they do so based on speculative thinking. They always say, we oppose gay rights because it's going to lead to dot 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 or they say we support one man and one woman because of where it came from and then they lay out the history of marriage and that's just as fanciful as their predictions are democrats do not engage in the same kind of logical fallacy supporters of gay rights do not predict that the country or the fabric of society will change they do not make wild claims about what will happen. They basically say it won't make a difference to anyone but the happy people who get married. What I'm saying is that Democrats do not use gay marriage as a wedge issue. They do not activate irrational, if understandable, parts of the brain to tell a scare story. The same with the specter of radical feminism. Democrats use what the Republicans use as wedge issues as more of consensus issues. Like they're pointing out, hey, I'm on the right side of this issue and so are you the voter. My opponent happens not to be. Maybe the wedge is that they're drawing distinctions, but they're not telling stories. I don't see Democrats as wielding gay marriage like Pat Buchanan or opponents of it wielded it, say during the 2004 Ohio election. There is one thing that I think is going on in framing the discussion as using wedge issues now, 
And it's that we, the press, but also in general, we have an inability to reckon with political fights that one side has clearly lost. There was a culture war. Conservatives lost it. On the other side, there was an idea of a welfare state. Liberals lost that. So let's take the number one issue in the polls today, the economy. There are two opposing ideas. There's stimulus and there's austerity. Austerity lost. Other than, say, in the country of Estonia, it it has been a failure where it was enacted. The Swedes, the Swedes even tried it and it failed there. There's a new government in Sweden. And stimulus in America has worked. It wasn't magic. It has costs. But the economy is rebounding because of more stimulus and less austerity. So it's actually worse than just having these knockdown, drag out political fights that turn off people and emphasize nastiness. Even worse than that is this fact that even after the nasty, dispiriting fights that turn everyone off, even after all that, we don't even bother keeping score. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of The Gist, is a Jewish-Italian-American who went up a mountain and came down with a head cold. There is a live culture fest on October 8th. In fact, there are two. In Los Angeles, the Culture Club will join guest screenwriters Craig Mazin and John August. They host the Script Notes podcast. There are still tickets left to the L.A. Culture Fest. They're at slate.com slash L.A. Culture Fest. Same day other side of the country, I'm going to be involved in a hang up and listen live event at the Galapagos Art Space. So if you like me on the gist, but would like to hear two thirds less of me and only talking about one subject pretty broadly, the Galapagos Art Space in Brooklyn, that's the place for you. Andy Bowers has said that executive producing Slate podcasts is a supposedly fun thing he'll never do again. You can listen to us on SoundCloud or go to iTunes. We are on Yo. You get the app. You subscribe to podcast. When this podcast is ready, we will Yo you. Slate.com slash just email is where you go to sign up for our email. You can play the show right off the email. We're on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. And our Twitter feed is Slate Gist. Email the gist at Slate.com. Credit to you for joining us on this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad podcast for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. And thanks for listening. The Quickening.